Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and this is an emergency podcast. There was no prior planning about this. We didn't see this coming, but the Ohio Supreme Court has just ruled that the gerrymandered map, the district map that Republicans in the legislature in Ohio drew is not constitutional, and they have rejected it. And there's no one better on planet Earth, probably, to talk about this breaking political news than David Pepper, the former chair of the Ohio Democratic Party, the author of Laboratories of Autocracy, a fantastic book, by the way, our previous guest on Beyond Politics. David, how are you? I'm having a great day. Thank you. I am not surprised that that you're doing well. We have not talked about this in advance. We have not planned this, but this is the kind of news that makes sense to to jump on and talk about in real time. And I, I mean, obviously, you've been right on top of this as this case has wended its way through the courts. You've been tracking it. And of course, this is also the topic of your book, Laboratories of Autocracy, where you're focusing on the kinds of state level actions that have enabled the Republican Party to increasingly take control, just do naked power grabs like they were attempting to do with this map. So first of all, just give us the background on this. What was it that the Republicans in Ohio were trying to do with this map? So there's, this is one of the, in my book, I spent a lot of time on the negative, but I, I spend the last third on what you can do. In today's victory, in the victory two days ago, today they struck down the congressional maps, Two days ago, they struck down the state house and state senate maps, the Supreme Court did. And that is happening because of five years of work by a lot of people. I was part of it, grassroots groups, good government groups, to to fight back against a decade of gerrymandering. And this is an example of don't just worry about who the president is, like I say in the book. It's so much of what's happening against democracy is happening in the states. If you don't fight back at the state level, a lot of these other elections are important, but you're not going to save democracy. And this was a great example. And I'd say it was an underdog story in a state that's gone pretty red in these Trump years of a bunch of people saying we've had it with rigged districts. Twice we gathered petitions and changed the Ohio Constitution to add language into that Constitution. They created standards about how to district. And then we also, and this is a big part of it, only two and a half years ago, three years ago, we had a 7-0 Republican Supreme Court. The standards that we put in place the Constitution, and today confirms it, were only as strong as we would have a balanced fair court. So for the next two years, while everyone else is focused on Trump and even Biden, we said, of course, we're going to help. But if we don't elect a fair Supreme Court, the change won't matter. And in, th- in four elections, we won three Supreme Court races knocked off two incumbents, won an open seat. We won a Supreme Court race by 10 points, even in the year that Trump won by eight, 2020, biggest overperformance in the country. And so today, those three justices, along with a chief justice, a Republican who voted, and we always hoped this would happen. She's a Republican who voted against the last gerrymandered map in 11. So we always thought if we get three and she does what she did 10 years ago, and they try and cheat, which they probably will do, we will have a court that's not a democratic court. It's, it's clearly not, but a court of people who are willing to stand up for the Constitution. And today's result was all those years of work for the second time in three days coming to fruition. And to me, like I, my worry about my book is it's very dark about what's happening and what, ha- what is happening is dark. But whether it's Stacey Abrams in Georgia 
or other examples or our example here around courts and gerrymandering, there are ways to fight back. It takes a long time. It takes focus, including when people are wondering, why keep talking about the Supreme Court when we got to win the presidency? And the answer was, we're going to help. We'll do what we can, but we have to stop gerrymandering here. And we stayed focused and we, ha we had some help, but it, there's a lot of good lessons to be learned from today's success. Now, let's be clear. The, as I say in the book, and we said in our last conversation, the people in the state house, all they've known is rigged districts. It's all they know. It's all they've lived in. They're going to keep trying to cheat. Let's not be naive. So this, this is the beginning of what I think will be a real institutional battle where they're going to, they'll try and get away with it again. I have no doubt. And, and we all have to cheer on a court uh, to stop them. Because right now, this court is the only thing standing between a, Ohio and pure lawlessness. This, this legislature, the decision two days ago, the court concluded after a lot of discovery, they didn't even attempt to follow the Constitution. They instructed their people drawing the maps, don't worry about that part of the Constitution. And three justices out of seven actually ruled that, that was okay. So we are like, this is true for the whole country. We're on the razor's edge right now of falling into true lawlessness. But here, at least a court has stepped up and saying, we're with the people who voted 75% for these changes. We're with the constitution. And in this case, it's a victory today, hopefully a victory over the next couple of weeks again. Well, so much to unpack in what you just said. I, and I, we'll, spe we'll spend the rest of the conversation, I think, going through a lot of it. But look, in brief, by the time people hear this, they may have already found on, on social, here's what went down. But obviously, Republicans tried to create a map for themselves at the congressional level where they would have had a 12 to 3 advantage. And in the words of the ruling from the Ohio Supreme Court, I mean, this is actually kind of a shocking plain English ruling. I loved it. You quoted it on Twitter, when the dealer stacks the deck in advance, the House usually wins. That perhaps explains how a party that generally musters no more than 55% of the statewide popular vote is positioned to reliably win anywhere from 75% to 80% of the seats. This is the thing that I think every time I get into an argument with a Republican friend, and I still have them, believe it or not, right, about too. gerrymandering, this is the point that I think is really, really hard to talk your way around. If statewide a party is winning about half the seats, why is a map that gives them such a massive advantage, an expectation that they're going to win so many more seats out of proportion to the number of people that actually want to support that party? Why does a map like that make sense? That's total digression. Let's pick up on a little bit of a, a thread that you were suggesting there. I think this news pairs really well with what was dominating Twitter yesterday, which was Senator Kirsten Cinema Senate floor speech in which she said, look, I support voting rights, but I am not going to do anything to the filibuster to pass the two big Democratic voting rights bills. And obviously, a lot of Democrats are down in the mouth about that. But it sounds like what you're offering both in your book and kind of in your reaction here to what happened in Ohio is let's not let's not lose sight of the good news side of this, which is even if we get stymied in the Senate, just the focus on the issue, just, just elevating it and getting people activated at the local level has value because you can make these incremental changes like yeah. you managed to do in Ohio that deliver these small victories like we got today. Yeah, let me just say, uh, there, I agree with everything you said, but there is no excuse for the federal government not acting. And I know you, you and I agree on that. 
it, 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 you go through history, if there's an attack on democracy at the state level, the federal government has a constitutional duty to respond. It's written in the constitution. The filibuster is not a legitimate obstacle. I've tried to communicate that to Kirsten Cinema and anyone else who will listen. But, and so I would say it has to happen, okay? They need to see that. But we don't just sit around and wait for that whenever it happens. Maybe we win some Senate seats and it happens next year. It has to happen, but we shouldn't just wait for that to happen. There's work to be done right now, political work, electoral work, policy work. And so in my book, I go through 30 steps. Several of them are that federal legislation, but these aren't alternatives. They are everything at once. And the point, and if all we do is protect at the federal level and continue to do politics the way we're doing it, where we don't focus enough on state houses and state level politics, we will still lose. I mean, put it this way. We had the Voting Rights Act in place for decades before the Supreme Court started hollowing it away, and we were beginning to already lose because we lost focus on the, 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 the most of the shaping of democracy in our country is through the rules that come out of state houses. And if we lose sight of that, and we don't have checks and balances at that level, even with federal protection, we lose. So the point is we got to do it all. So I am very down about the Senate, and I would not stop fighting there until the last vote is counted, and I drag it out for weeks or months if I were in charge. Oh, sorry. That's okay. Um, this is what happens when you're doing an emergency podcast is the rest of the world intervenes. And for our listeners who can obviously hear David Pepper receiving a phone call right now, it, it, this could easily be a former president or something. You are very hooked in. Tell me what kind of reaction you're getting throughout Democratic circles to this ruling today, paired with, as you importantly pointed out, the ruling two days ago on the state level. Are, are people feeling hopeful that despite what Republicans are going to try, I'm sh sure, surely you're right, that they're going to try to put forward another map that is just as gerrymandered or, or nearly as gerrymandered. Here I am. Oh, it, so is there a feeling it, among your contacts, the people you're talking to, and you're so well plugged in, both in Ohio and across the country, is there a feeling that that this is that somehow in the with the strength of this ruling here that there that it's going to be hard for Republicans to go quite this far that this is going to be an enduring lasting in change in Ohio? I think actually the more I think about it. The, the, the language of these opinions, I think, actually are national in their importance. There have just not been that, and, and it's bipartisan. This is not just democratically endorsed judges. The, the, the chief justice is a longtime establishment figure in the Republican Party. At one point, she was the lieutenant governor of the state before she became a justice. So I think the language of this opinion like strikes a real blow at court saying, there's nothing we can do about this, the way it explains it. And what's really good about this and interesting, going back to the federal legislation, we tried an independent commission process, okay? It lost on the ballot. It lost badly in 2012. So I agree, the best system has no politicians at all involved. But that didn't work here because the Republicans opposed it. They ran all sorts of money attacking it. So this was sort of the alternative. Put standards into the Constitution that are clear, and can be measured against the map. That's what's in the Freedom of the Vote Act in the Senate right now. Same approach. Puts you know, the court, the Supreme Court and other courts have always said, North Carolina, there are no standards that we can judge, so it's up to them. Well, the Ohio voters said, okay, we'll put some standards in. 
we'll show you what a map looks like. That's what the Freedom to Vote Act says. So to me, this is a precedent that it's not a panacea. The best thing is no politicians at all. These people are going to still act in ways that are inappropriate. But to create standards is a great model if you can't get the independent one done. And this shows a fair court can enforce those standards. And that shows that the federal model that's currently in the Senate, that Amy Klobuchar's bill does, the Freedom to Vote Act, is actually something that could also work. But, but it, yes, this is the court needed to speak very clearly here because I think these rigged legislators are going to always want to cheat. And they need to understand, and this is the problem in our system right now that I talk about in the book, there's never accountability for these lawbreakers. They violate the Constitution all the time. They're never held accountable, so they keep doing it. And we need to have opinions by courts like this that strike the fear of God in them, like, my gosh, this court is not kidding around. Down the road, if they keep obstructing, they need to fear that they will pay consequences themselves. And the, deci the decisiveness of these opinions are so cutting that I think it shows this court is serious. This court is not going to sit around and let these guys get away with this. And so that's what it's going to take. So I think it really puts down a marker in Ohio to, for your question. But I also think to the extent that there's this long-term battle over what do we do about gerrymandering nationally, this shows that at least with a fair court, clear standards, and I'll, I'm not going to take all the credit, but I worked hard with the coalition to get these standards in. We, we, were, we had lawyers intentionally writing it to get it clear as a, as a bell that that can also work if you have fair courts that aren't playing games. Well, you it's know, a model that can work. It's not the best, but if you can't do the independent commission, get some clear standards into the process and it can work. That's, ex that's exactly where I wanted to go because one of the overlooked lessons of 2018 was just how popular election reform and democracy protection measures were on the state level. What we mm -hmm. saw over and over again in states that are red states, blue states and purple states is that these kinds of measures, some of them were public matching provisions for, for funding elections. Some of them were independent redistricting commissions. Some of them were, there, there were a whole raft of referenda state laws that were, that were being considered on the ballot uh, across the country. And they yeah. were overwhelmingly popular and they Absolutely. overwhelmingly passed something like 15 out of 17 of them yeah. passed. And more to the point, they all vastly overperformed the Democrats at the top of the ticket. Totally. And this you was 75 percent here. We this was 75 percent, 25 percent. Well, and that's that really goes to my Blow question, out. which is what is the what is the lesson learned for other states and for Democrats who are down in the mouth about Senator Sinema's position on, and, and the, the fate of the federal legislation, which seems to be stymied right now. What is the lesson learned now? If you're, if you're at the state level, what can you learn from what you guys did in Ohio that can advance the ball and start putting money in the bank for future victories? Yeah. I mean, one is, is focus on the state level. Two, and I, this is all in, this, in these 30 things I put in my book. Most of what these state house, these undemocratic, Koch brother, Alec controlled state houses are doing are deeply unpopular. They are, they are ripping money out of schools. They're attacking Roe v. Wade. They're passing insane gun laws that only 20% of people agree with. The more, and if you're gerrymandered, you can't stop it. So if you're in a state that can take issues to the people, go to the people because these guys are doing, the reason the unpopular things go to state houses 
is because that's where they can do it and get away with it. If a mayor did it, they'd lose because they're so unpopular. In Ohio, a bunch of the anti-mask, anti-vax people ran for school board. They all lost because they're they're off the they're not close to the mainstream. So if you, Ohio, we're we're fortunate, we can gather petitions. That's a lot of signatures. It's a lot of work, often a lot of money. But if you can go to the people, because your state allows you to, on these pro-democracy issues, on is, other issues, never let them fool you into thinking that they're on the side of the majority. They're not. That's why they have to gerrymander. Because in a real election, they would lose. So go to the people if you can. Now, one of the sad lessons is, even if you go to the people, they're going to try and do what they just did here. They tried to ignore the new constitution. They didn't even care about it. In Missouri, they went to the people in Missouri on redistricting, and the legislature refused to do it for, for four years or two years, and they brought a new one back up when they knew Trump was running, it, running and they replaced it. So don't think winning with the people is enough. You've got to keep fighting. So we won, and then we kept fighting for Supreme Court seats, knowing that we had to get those. But yes, go to the people. Most of the things these state houses are doing are deeply unpopular if people know what they are. And, and, and by the way, Nowhere in life, and we probably talked about this in the other show, nowhere in life do people think unaccountable and rigged games are good. We wouldn't accept it in sports. We wouldn't accept it in business. You, you keep your job no matter how badly you do. That doesn't make sense anywhere. So why would we ever accept it in politics? That, that p- politicians pick districts they can't lose. So it actually turns out if, if people get it, it's incredibly unpopular. And that's why it was a 75-25 issue. Well, obviously this grabbed attention because it related to congressional maps and the federal level. And like I said, it pairs very well with what was dominating the news cycle yesterday with Senator Sinema's speech and position. But I don't want to be guilty of the same flaw that we're talking about here and just gloss over what happened at the state level. Just tell people, because I bet they are much less familiar, but to your point, it's just as significant. What happened with the ruling for the state legislative maps? And, and how significant is that? What, what kind of gerrymandering were we talking about with that map? And is it going to be fixed? Yeah, same problem. I mean, they, they, once we saw the decision the other day on the state house, we knew this one was probably going to be the same. They drew a map that was way out of proportion to their overall makeup. They were caught not even trying to file the new constitution. It was struck down. And again, I'm glad you asked because... The heart of the rigged system at the state level is the state house map. That's what gives them the ability to do all the damage you do federally, because that's the self-protection map. It's gravy to be able to rig districts for their congressional members. But what allow and think about it as a battle, and I don't like to use these terms because I don't want to talk violence, but how do you win a battle from the high ground, right? Well, if you've rigged all your own districts so you can never lose them as a state house member, you're on the high ground. You never lose, no matter how crazy the things you do are. So they, before they even worry about what to do for Congress, which is what most of us focus on or the media, they set their own districts so they can never lose. That is the heart of their power. They're unaccountable and they know it. And from their impregnable districts, they do everything else. So as important as it was that we just hopefully are helping save the house from being determined by only rigging, it's equally important that we struck down a state house map so they don't have a guaranteed 65-34 majority or something, which is what they want to create for themselves. 
even Klein, if voters in Ohio are much closer to 50-50. Ezra Klein just wrote in the New York Times a whole argument that Democrats are fundamentally missing the bottoms up, the importance of the bottoms up approach. And he was focused on county registrar of deeds and election supervisors, super hyper local elections. But his point sounded to me an awful lot like the point you're making, which is that Democrats get super obsessed with essentially what the top funders in the Democratic Party are obsessed with, which is the presidential level, U.S. Right. Senate, rightfully so, a ton of power in America at those levels. But I think Klein's point is, first of all, that you need to stock the bench if you want to win those levels. And second of all, all of the gears of everything we're trying to achieve, all of that is set at the at these at this hyper local level. Is that one of the core arguments that both you're making in your book and that you think is a is a take home from the ruling today that we've got to get ourselves way, way more focused on the local level, even before building to the state level? I mean, I think they go together, but yeah, we can't let's put it this way. 20 was a as, as a matter of democracy's concerned, I'm thrilled that Biden win, but it was a really bad year for democracy because we didn't gain a single state house. We didn't have, we didn't, we didn't figure out how to gain from coattails from Biden. And we and so the gerrymandering and anti-democracy momentum of a, the last decade just kept rolling forward as we saw. And I think that we do lose sight of that. And I agree with Ezra Klein. And and oftentimes people say, and again, it's it's the myopic view of just the federal level. Boy, we have to we have to focus on local and state house because we have to build a bench. The Koch brothers aren't building a bench. They know that those state house members design democracy. It's not they don't care if these people go to the next level. They could care less. They care more that they are the ones that are rigging districts and potentially affecting electoral outcomes in college with the electoral college. The, the power it's not a people, means to an end it is no, the end that the is end. what the power is right they control the and, and again I, I put in the book and we said it last time madison knew this he said my biggest fear among many things in this constitution is in the wrong hand state houses can undermine our nation's democracy so you can't let that happen so yeah it's i've never said it the way you just said it it's it, it's a means to get more people in congress but more, they don't. But if Congress does nothing, they're fine if they're getting their agenda done through the state house, which is right, what they're right. doing right this second. So it's it for us. It should be about building a bench. But more than that, it's this is where the power is. Just like the power of and, and one of the things I put in my book is focus on all the levers of democracy, state house and a Supreme Court in a state that's a check and balance on the state house. That's what we did here. We knew that if we could get ourselves a balanced court, we could be a check on this rigged, corrupt state house, ranked number one in the country in corruption. And that's exactly what happened today. And so, yeah, I, I think that that's what he was talking about. Now, the one thing I didn't like was he said plan B, as if I'm not giving up on the federal stuff. You need it. We need it. It's not, a, it, it's true. What we've gone through to get to this point, and this, I'm not whining, it's more than you should have to do to have a fair democracy. It shouldn't be this close. It shouldn't be this on edge. Like it's, it, people are crying in Ohio because they've done this. It's, that's not what it should be about. Like elections should be about 
I have better ideas than you. We have a fair election. We won. And right now, people in places like Ohio are fighting for our lives, for democracy. And that's, in the end, not a, the federal government should not be letting that be the stakes of elections. And so they have to step up, too. Well, that's um, obviously but, couldn't but agree more. Yes. I mean, the, the, the state level, we have there's the, there's the responsibility of legislators at the federal level. But there's the responsibility. And I have a good friend of Jamie Harrison. He understands this. Jamie's the head of the DNC. He's from South Carolina. They've been dealing with this stuff for years, too. So he gets it. The broader democratic pro-democracy culture and network has to all make a big decision. Are we going to keep playing the game at the federal level in swing states? Are we going to figure out that the reason they're kicking our is because they're playing a 50-state anti-democracy strategy while we're battling over federal offices as, as if that's all that's at stake. We have to say, we're going 50 states, we're going every year, and we're going after all the positions that affect democracy, not just senators and congressmen as much as those are important. And until everyone does that, and it sounds real cute and flip, but uh, the way I put it in my book is, take 5% of what people elected pre uh, spent to elect Joe Biden president, 5%. Billions divided over 50 states over four years. Invest it. State $10,000 to a state house race. That's a lot of money. It's nothing in a presidential. That, that's about, you'd be talking about that kind of help. Spread it out over four years. That's, I, I, my guess is a few big donors would say, that's crazy. We would never do that. My answer is, that's what the Koch brothers did. That's what they did. They figured out. Karl Rove did that. He won his big plan in 2010 that won the state houses, that rigged this, the country. 30 million bucks was to spend, $30 million. Rounding error of the presidential. So it sounds kind of simple and maybe a little bit eccentric. It's, it was the bet the Koch brothers and Alec made. It's worked perfectly ever since. So I'm sure they were bummed that Trump lost, okay? They still have McConnell with the filibuster. But best of all, they still have the lever on every state house they've had for a decade. And man, that's how they're getting everything done. Well, look, I, I think what I love about this entire discussion is that it really does, it really does kind of pull together all these threads that you've talked about on this show before, and that people th this is the, the absolute top of mind subject for Democrats everywhere right now is how are we going to forestall this, this full-scale assault on democracy? And I, I think what I, what I hear you saying and what I really want listeners to walk away with is, yes, I know this is one state, it's one right. ruling, but it didn't just fall out of the sky, right? Yeah. This isn't a deus ex machina. This is the result of a carefully considered strategy and approach from you and from people you worked with. It's, it's not all David Pepper, oh, yeah. but you had a big hand in this. Broad coalition. Make sure to set up the conditions where we can have a chance, just a chance of advancing the ball and saving ourselves from the worst of the yeah. worst and it can work and it's a model that can be replicated and, and one thing i'd say about it is it's a long game for democracy and we too quickly give up cycle by cycle and, and i'll give an example of this after ohio november of 20 biden lost ohio by eight some people called me up and they said oh what happened what a terrible day i said excuse me Biden's the president and we won our Supreme Court race. I'm very happy. 
Biden didn't try and win Ohio. He, he knew he could win in Georgia, Wisconsin. I wish he had tried to win, but I, I can't change that. And But that didn't mean I changed my focus, which was win that Supreme Court seat, which was the decisive vote. And so even though everyone else is, because they're only focused on one thing, moaning and groaning that we didn't win Ohio for Biden when he didn't try and win Ohio, I was literally like, I know what my goal was, and we won it by 10. Best overperformance in the country. So the point is, like, if you're thinking bigger for democracy, you understand that it's much more than just that one federal race, that one Senate race. And sometimes, and in this case, the Ohio Republican Party screwed up for three straight years. They never focus on these Supreme Court races all around the state. Our voters, we got sample ballots in every hand. We recruited great candidates all around the state, sample ballots in every hand of Democrats. They knew, because we didn't have party ID on the ballot, they knew exactly who to vote for all the way through judge. Republicans, no sample ballots. Those Trump voters stopped voting. They didn't know who the Democrat was. And all around the state that happened so that we took an eight point loss and had a 10 point win. So the point is like, stay focused, long game. This took five years. But don't only focus on the federal stuff that everyone's paying attention to. And don't measure your success. Again, I was being measured. I heard it. Oh, what a di disappointment. What happened? I'm like, what happened? We actually won the race that was our most important race. And you will see in several months. And my worry is, as I look around the country, there are many states being gerrymandered right now. And they, did not, they were not able to create the protection that we were able to create for a variety of reasons. And they won't be able to go to a court and argue what we were able to do. And, and that's sometimes that's because they were in a federal cycle and that's all they could focus on. Other times it's because they couldn't change the constitution the way we could. But either way, it's just a good lesson of be strategic about where democracy is in the balance. And it's not always where everyone thinks it is. Well, there's another lesson, which is it's incredibly important to be strategic. And as I was noting a moment ago, look, you guys had a very intentional strategy here that has paid off for now. Look, we don't want to get right. ahead of ourselves, yeah, but it has clearly paid off in, in some way. And it was because you focused on the right things and there was a very deliberate choice. It was a, it was a choice and a focus. But I don't want to let go also of tactics because what you just said a moment ago is incredibly important. And I, I can't hammer this home enough for people who are public policy professionals or political professionals. It's the importance of thinking, of playing the movie, essentially, okay. thinking at a tactical level as well. You were talking about, hey, we had sample ballots. We thought about how are voters going to actually know to vote for these candidates? They may not have gotten communication about them. Right. We, we can get them. They're gettable. Yeah. We, we can get these voters, but they have to know how are we going to do that. And what sure. you did inherently there was you played the movie. This was the number one lesson I learned as a public policy graduate student is the importance of not just thinking at 30,000 feet, of actually yeah. playing the movie at the ground level. How is this going to work? Who's yeah. going to make a phone call to whom? Okay, well, it's after 11 o'clock. You, you, they're not going to pick up the phone. You have to think at that kind of a detailed level. It reminds me, I was in a DCCC, that's for, that's the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. I was in a DCCC training, oh, I don't know, about 15 years ago, and they brought in James Carville to do a little rah-rah speech. He could not have cared less about the group of us congressional campaign managers, because what he said is, look, what most people think, it was typical salty Carville language. It was like, look, 
What most people think is to do politics, do campaigns means sitting around, drinking coffee. You got one thumb in your mouth, the other thumb up your butt. You switch them every 30 minutes. You think you're accomplishing something. I don't know what that means, it, right. but, it, but it gets across the idea of it's not all thinking high level strategy thoughts. Right. A lot of it is about really thinking through. And I think that was Ezra Klein's point, which is that frequently Democrats and Democratic funders and Democratic operatives don't have the patience to think about how are we going to make this work on the ground level? Right. And to me, that seems to be another one of the lessons learned. Yeah, to, be, to be very specific, now I'm going back in my, my memory, I had a task force around how do we do better? Because we had had 10 years. Like, we lost a Supreme Court race when Obama won because our voters were the ones who did understand who was the Democrat and who to vote for. So I put the, we looked at all the numbers and we said, well, that, and by the way, when I mentioned the $30 million for Karl Rove, it's not that expensive to get everyone to get a sample ballot. It actually was a very efficient spend. We didn't need tens of millions, but one of the things that we did when we, when we looked at the tab, we saw the numbers, our voters do not vote through the ballot. They are dropping off. The Republican right. voters were more disciplined. We flipped that. We even we didn't win these races in 16, but we came much closer. And we saw, my gosh, we didn't win because Trump won by eight. But we saw that our drop-off actually had fallen below their drop-off. So we knew what we did in 16 was working. So in 18, we were able to go to funders and others and say, I know it didn't look like a win, but we made some progress in these court races that we hadn't seen in decades. We've been losing these things for decades. We made some progress. We could see it in the data. So we said, let's do more of it. In 18, we win both. Shock, shock the Republicans. They had no idea it was coming. We win both Supreme Court races. And then in 20, we keep going. And even in the face of an eight-point Trump win, we win by 10. It, all around the state, our voters knew who to vote for. Their voters did. We also, again, great candidates, awesome candidates. Oftentimes, elected judgeships, a lot of states don't have them. They sound a little bit funny, right? They're ridiculous. I mean, they're yeah. honestly okay. ridiculous. So, so there's a lot to say about them. And a, and a lawyer, like I get all that. One of the problems with candidates for judges, often they're great judges, but they aren't good candidates, okay? You got to give a speech in, a, in, a, in an election. We have three, we had three candidates who were great candidates, who loved to get out and give speeches, who were all over the state doing all sorts of creative things, even during COVID. And so we had great, and so I never want to take away from them. They they led, they won, they overperformed. They beat in two of the three beat incumbents. First African American woman ever to be a Democrat ever to be elected in the state of Ohio wrote the first gerrymandering opinion, like historic in multiple ways. But then we communicated to voters. We said to those candidates, "You don't have to spend your money telling Democrats how important it is they vote for you." Which in the past, that's what they they were left with everything. Tell them who you are, win swing voters, and then make sure that they know to vote all through the ballot. We said to them as a party, we're going to do all the other stuff. You tell everyone why you're good, swing voters included. We'll spend our money making sure every Democrat votes for you because they have a sample ballot. We divvied it up. And that's how you, you, you we took good candidates with good tactics. And boom, by the way, we also won appellate. First time anyone remembers, we have a majority of the appellate seats in the state of Ohio. That's actually amazing. Yeah, given we, the given the overall, exactly. right? That's that's we, an incredible. We thing. knocked out incumbents. We picked the, in Hamilton County where I live. Four or five years ago, we had zero. Now we have five of the six, because well, that sample ballot meant you voted all the way to the end. 
We had a Republican-controlled court of Hamilton County Common Pleas. We crushed them on every race. Why? Good candidates, diverse candidates, sample ballots. So the tactics worked in the broader, the broader idea. And what was awesome was once we set the tone from the state party, all of our county party parties, they did it incredibly well. Like they had people in blue t-shirts at every polling place. Get your sample ballot here. Every Democrat went and got it because they knew what the blue t-shirts meant, you know, and on and on and on and on. And so well, it had effects at all levels. Well, that's again, I, I mean, uh, the, uh, two things. One, I'd like to, I'd like to spike the, the football that we were just right. laying out here in that, I mean, I, I ran a congressional race that we were widely expected to lose nine years ago, 10 to coming up on 10 years ago. And we were picked as the number one most likely loss in the country. And we won. And after the fact, one of the consultants that we were working with said, look, you guys, how you won this thing, you won it on a spreadsheet. You won it because you had a good budget six months ago. And right. we were able to do, and I won't get into the details, we were able to do all kinds of little technical things that allowed us to stretch our money to go up on TV and send mail. And we were able to stretch our money about twice as far as the Republican side, which meant we got to do a lot more with a lot less. And it was a super detailed, nerdy, sitting late at night with a spreadsheet type deal. And I think the point of all of this, and I think it comes through in everything that you're describing, is it's so easy to get discouraged by the news at the national level yep. and the gaslighting that you see, not just from Donald Trump, but from his acolytes, this idea right. that somehow democratic outrage at the things that are going on at the state level to rob us of democracy, that somehow our outrage of, of, at that is in itself outrageous. Mitch McConnell right. takes the floor and says, how dare Joe Biden show emotion about this topic? He's unhinged. I mean, it, it, it's so easy to be infuriated oh, really and depressed is. by all of that. But I think the story that you're telling here is, first of all, there is something people can do about it. Because you don't need special expertise, you don't need high level strategy, you don't need to be the, the next great democratic thinker, you just need to work hard and do things that all of us are able to do. You right. just need to be able to, maybe you can do a budget, maybe you can, maybe you can design a pamphlet, a sample ballot, maybe you can volunteer. Right. These things make a difference. And sometimes, as you were just pointing out, you don't see it immediately. It's a, it's a payoff, it's an investment that will pay off 10 years later in something right. you couldn't possibly have anticipated. And that, and, and uh, the, the, my model for that, I think we showed that here, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, she lost in 18. And when she gave that speech, she said, we made progress. And I'm sure everyone thought, it's like me on election day in 20, like thinking, hey, I'm pretty happy. Like Stacey Abrams said in 18, we made progress. People probably thought, oh, that's just, no. Right. Why'd we win in 20? Because she made progress in 18. And we have to think about, it. I mean, I go back and I, when people, we gloss, I mean, do you know how many life, lifetimes were spent for women's suffrage? Right, right, you know how right. How many generations were spent by John Lewis? Now, we shouldn't have to do this, but they understood it's a long game. Democracy, when people are fighting it, it's not easy. And so we have to start defining it longer and thinking that way and judging progress. I knew we didn't win those two Supreme Court races in 16, but we saw that we were onto something. And what we did, and we doubled down. Next thing we know, we win two. And then two years later, in a very same overall election of 16, we win by 10. And it just showed you just keep going and learn from it.
And too often, the minute we have any loss, and you're going to have bad cycles, but don't just quit if you can see that something's working. Because there's a lot of things you control, a lot of things you don't control. But yeah, well, you need a long game plan. And I, that's my other worry right now is there are not enough people who have a long game plan whatsoever. Yeah. And one of the things I'm doing following this book, because I my main goal was to write it so that I could share some of this stuff through the book. One of the things that I, I've, I've been introduced to a lot of interesting people doing interesting things. And my hope is to use some of those case studies to build some long game strategies and implementation steps that start to solve some of these issues. So more to come on that if I'm able to do them, but, but we've got to have long-term game game plans that we just haven't had. Well, I'll tell you one thing that you can do, and maybe we're doing a little bit of this podcast. You can do it in your book. And I like the idea of your follow-on project is create case studies like what you've just described of, we're going to play the movie for you. Here's what you do. Here's how you design a sample ballot. Here's, have you thought about where the volunteers go and what they wear? And we need that because one of the things that I, I think really holds back especially Democrats, I think to some extent Republicans as well, is we reinvent the campaign wheel over and over again. There's some people who are in it for the long term, but a lot of the people who are professionals who go into campaigns or who do this kind of work at the, at the advocacy level, they turn over, they go on to other things, they, life takes over, and we lose so much institutional knowledge. We reinvent so many wheels and just having a playbook of you don't have to reinvent this wheel is in itself valuable. So love the idea. And I, I, I hope you, I do hope you end up doing that. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I want to take maybe this last third of my book, which is about what to do and maybe turn it into a longer sort of almost workbook type thing for that reason. Cause I think people, I get on these calls and I feel like it's important for people to understand just how deep the problem is because I don't think people do. They, they think we didn't win because they're only looking at a few things. But people are very, very eager to hear solutions. So I, I want to adjust and add more there too. So just as we as we close out here, what should people look for next? What 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 are the next steps? What's going to happen next in Ohio? in Ohio? They don't have a long time to turn around. I think we're going to have a real institutional battle. I mean, I this state house is you know, the Republican Party yesterday. And by the way, for the, those lit, potential litigants out there, never do this. The the court retained jurisdiction, main saying, we're watching guys and we're not gonna like let you go until you fix this. The head of the Republican party attacked by name the Republican chief justice saying she was responsible for this mess. Don't do that. But what you are gonna see is a massive, I think, institutional battle from a state house that is used to not following the law and not being told by anyone what to do in a court, a newly independent court willing to tell them what to do. And obviously, I'm here for the court to hold out until the Constitution is followed. Is there anything that people who are listening to this, who care about this outcome, can do as this battle starts to unfold in the next few months? I mean, it's going to be weeks. Weeks. You know, I would say we, we, have a, we have an energized grassroots movement here around this. I just say, look in your own community at what you could do like this. And, and th this is the one thing I'd say that the, the way to put it, it sounds a little bit like vague, but I think it's important. It, we're at a new year. Make a commitment to yourself. You will add lifting democracy as part of your own personal mission statement for the year. You will do things to lift democracy just like we did here. A local court race, a state rep race, 
registering voters, not just as a volunteer, but if you run a small business, if you're on a nonprofit board of a food bank, are they registering voters in, in everything they in everything they do every day? So whatever you can do in your footprint in this world, are you using it to lift democracy? And if you're not, start. That's my number one thing I'd say. And if you want to read the book, all the details on how you do that, it's all in there. The book is Laboratories of Autocracy. This is David Pepper, and this is Beyond Politics. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thanks so much. Take care.